How are you feeling? Well, incredibly emotional. It's hard for me to explain. Everything just makes me cry. And I know that's insane, but that doesn't change the fact that that's how I feel. Like, hypercharged emotional. Whenever I see you cry, I'm just like, but that's a good sign. <laughs> I know it's a good sign. It still doesn't change the fact that I just want to cry all the time. Are you anxious about the appointment today? I am incredibly anxious about the appointment today because I don't know how I would emotionally handle not seeing a heartbeat. I'm really scared about that. Um, yeah. Are you scared? I'm a little scared, yeah. Um, but the other side of it is if my boobs are this big and I'm crying this much, it has to be okay. So... If it somehow wasn't, uh, God, what a setback that would be again. <sighs> I don't want to do that again. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is, is Labyrinths. One in eight pregnancies end in miscarriage, but you never imagine that will be yours until the ultrasound technician hesitates, then whispers, there's no heartbeat. Losing our first pregnancy led us to reach out to other couples to hear their struggles with miscarriage and infertility. That became the subject of our last miniseries. After that loss, we kept trying and trying. And finally, we saw that positive pregnancy test. But when you've already lost one, any future pregnancy is tinged with fear. That's how we entered into this journey. We had found the world of infertility mysterious and isolating because no one talks about it. The world of pregnancy can be just as confusing, but for different reasons. It's easy to feel lost in the flood of information, which is often delivered with an urgency that flirts with hostility. If you don't do X, you don't care about your baby. Even the more measured and, you would think, trustworthy advice delivered by doctors comes without much explanation. And then there's the social media filter, which shows us the glamour of pregnancy, but rarely the pain and the emotional difficulty. Starting this journey already anxious from our first miscarriage, all we wanted was to know the truth, the scientific truth, the data about our actual risks so we could make informed choices, and the emotional truth so we could prepare ourselves. That emotional truth, raw and unvarnished, was hard to find. So we decided that, at the very least, we could document our journey so the next person might have an honest window into this experience. It's no small decision, for me especially, to be public about something as intimate as my pregnancy. Why expose ourselves this way? Well, for one, we have few good options. When Amanda was thrust into the spotlight, she became a public figure, and the laws no longer protect her or her family from invasive press. That means there's no legal recourse we can take when TMZ shows up outside our wedding. 
And it means that regardless of what I choose to do, diverse outlets will write stories about my pregnancy to further whatever narrative they choose, turning my private life into their content. All I can do is choose to tell the story in my own words and on my own terms, and to do so in a way that hopefully shines a light on the emotional obstacles I wish I had seen ahead of time. As for clearing up the opacity when it comes to all the conflicting medical advice, the endless behavioral prescription and prohibition, we reached out to Dr. Emily Oster. My name is Emily Oster. I am a professor of economics at Brown University, but a lot of my professional work in the last decade has been writing around pregnancy and parenting. I have a book called Expecting Better, which is about decision-making pregnancy. And now I have a second one called Crib Sheet, which is about early parenting, babies and toddlers. And I have a third one called The Family Firm, which is about bigger kid problems and family decision-making more generally. Dr. Emily Oster was kind enough to join us for this three-part mini-series that will take you along for the ride through each trimester of our pregnancy. We'll be returning to speak with her about our pregnancy anxieties each step of the way. But what do you do if you aren't lucky enough to have someone like Emily Oster as a guide? Well, an increasingly common way that expecting couples try to sift through the mind-blowing facts of procreation is through pregnancy tracking apps. They tell you, week by week, what's happening with your developing child. So, we are starting week six, and apparently our baby is as big as a jelly bean. It has a tail. It's got a little sort of head growing. Little indentations on both sides of the head are where the ear canals are forming. The small dots will form the eyes. So those Honestly, are the it eyes. looks like something that you'd find flash fried in some spicy powder and served as a street snack alongside beetles somewhere in like East Asia. <laughs> <laughs> it does look a little shrimpy. Yeah. <laughs> Checking the app each week becomes a ritual. Today is the first day of week seven. Let's see, brain cells are generated at a rate of 100 per minute. Jesus. The baby is about the size of a blueberry, which is 10,000 times bigger than it was at conception. 10,000 times. It's a whole new week. Eight weeks. Oh, it's as big as a gummy bear. All these metaphors of things you want to eat. Fingers and toes are just starting to differentiate. An upper lip is forming and the protruding tip of a nose. The heart is beating at a rate of 150 to 170 times a minute, roughly twice as fast as mine. The apps also try to inform you about the changes happening to your own body. Oh, I should expect frequent urination heartburn and indigestion. I've been feeling so much indigestion. Hmm. Oh my God. It's like pregnancy is just me being gassy. Oh. It sucks. Well, there was more stuff down there. Breast tenderness. My breasts are getting bigger and my nipples are sticking out more than usual. They are super tender. Umbilical cord is forming. Saliva in the mouth. Yes, I have extra saliva. But whatever illumination these apps provide to the journey of pregnancy, it still often feels like you're lost on a dark road. You're given all this information, 
but very little understanding of why you should do X versus Y. It was that feeling that led Emily Oster to start writing about pregnancy. So we became familiar with you through Expecting Better. How would you describe this book? The book really came out of my own experience. My daughter is now amazingly almost 10. But when I got pregnant with her, I found myself in this world that I was not expecting. You know, I I don't know, I, I thought that I would have more decision making or there would be more discussions about what we were going to do. And it was a sort of very patronizing experience. I felt like nobody was listening to what I wanted or explaining anything to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm a person who really likes to hear explanations. And so if you tell me like only have two cups of coffee, I want to know why. Like, it's okay if the answer is I can't have any coffee, but I'd really like to understand, is it the same reason that you think I should have any cigarettes or is it a different reason? And so I ended up starting to do a lot of that research, which is closely linked to the kinds of research I do at my job that I wrote this book, which I sometimes describe as halfway between a memoir and a meta-analysis. A meta-analysis is like a big academic study where you take all the studies and you summarize them formally. So on the one hand, it's written for a lay audience, but it's also not a book that shies away from the science. So I really try to dive into like, what do the studies say? Let me explain to you why this kind of study is better than this other kind of study. And I hoped when I was writing it, that it would fill a niche. And I wanted to be like, yeah, I'm going to explain to you why I came to these conclusions, not just tell you, trust me, I'm an expert. Yeah, the analogy that really stuck with me is the real estate agent one where they're like, people without kids don't like backyards, so we're not going to show you any houses with backyards. Yeah. And then even when you say, well, actually, we like backyards, they're like, no, you don't. (laughs) That's not how this is done. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I feel like a big piece of this for me was just saying, look, we need to level the playing field. Like you don't have that much time with your OB. And so there is a temptation for the conversation to be like, here's what you're going to do. And I found for me, there was a lot of like catch up. They were like, okay, let's do this. And then I was like, oh my God, I didn't think about that. Like, wait. And they were like, we got to decide about this tomorrow. Hmm. I was like, but I, I didn't think I was going to have to do that today. And so <laughs> some of the book is really saying now you can be a little more prepared and that's going to make those conversations much more productive with your doctor. Reading Emily Oster's book did help us feel more prepared, in a theoretical way, because the whole thing still feels theoretical in those first weeks. How you feeling? Does it feel real yet? It doesn't really feel real yet. Maybe when, you're, when you start showing, it'll feel more real. Like when it starts moving and you can feel it through my belly and stuff? Yeah. What is real to me is the fact that my body feels super off right now. Everything is aching. I'm gassy. I'm tired. Mm -hmm. I'm cranky. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At week eight, we had an appointment for our first ultrasound, where hopefully we'd see a heartbeat. That, above all, would make it feel a lot more real. But the closer we got to the eight-week mark, where I'd lost the first pregnancy, the more nervous I got. It would have been easier on Amanda if I was allowed to join her in the room for these doctor visits. But in the midst of the pandemic, I was forced to video chat in from the hallway. I wanted to ask a question about COVID. And if parents have been reaching out to you with experiences or concerns about how COVID has impacted their pregnancy. Early on, There was this very brief period in New York when people were not even allowed to have a partner with them when they were giving birth. Oh, my God. 
that is dialed back a bit, but that was a period of people really freaking out. And, you know, I got a lot of emails that were in this space of, is my partner's relationship with the baby going to be forever damaged by them not being there? Or like, am I going to be okay? And then people worried about what if I get COVID? Is it worse for me being pregnant? And most of what we know is pretty reassuring. Um, Yeah. Tell me, reassure me. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so I would say two things to reassure you. So one, you know, the risks of COVID and pregnancy are similar to what they would be for someone in your age group, which is to say relatively low, probably slightly higher risk in terms of worse complications, but that's not like special to COVID and transmission to infants seems to be really low. So even among people with like symptomatic COVID, they almost never transmit to their infants. Amazing. So Hmm. that's good. The other thing I would say is I don't want to like understate the niceness of having your partner at these visits. And I feel bad for Chris, but life is long. Life is long, but there are some moments that you just shouldn't miss. Like seeing your first child's heartbeat for the first time. Or being there to hold your wife's hand when they tell you, yet again, that it's a loss. On the eve of that eight-week ultrasound, our child was both alive and dead. A Schrodinger's fetus. Outside the doors of the OBGYN, we hugged, I went inside, and Chris found a spot in the hallway on the floor near the restroom. Masks on and tethered through video chat on our phones, we crossed our fingers for good news. I'm in the robes. And, you feeling okay? Um, I guess. I'm nervous, but how are you? I'm okay. I'm hopeful. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Man, are you ready? Yep. Hi. Hi. How are you feeling? Oh, good. A little yeah. nervous because yeah. we miscarried last time, but um, hopeful this time. Okay. So. Well, it's not the most fun part of the exam, Christopher. So unfortunately, we all kind of have to live through this. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have you scoot even more towards me, like almost like you're falling off the table. Doing all right? Yeah. Do you see, Boo? Uh, I can see now, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm going to have, hold still here. Oh, oh, there's your baby right there. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. Oh my God. Oh my God. Sorry, I, this is You're very fine. exciting. I was You're so fine. Scared. Don't, no, I know. Because after an early pregnancy loss, it's always like, this is sort of the moment of truth. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of hard for me to see through the phone. Is the heart that little black spot? No, <laughs> it's moving. I'll show you. I'm going to move the probe around a little bit, Christopher. So you'll see, I'm going to zoom in and I'll point out the heartbeat for you. Okay. You doing okay with that pressure? Yeah. Okay. Now I'm just, I don't even care. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So right here, do you see where my finger is? There's a flicker. Uh-huh. That's the babe's heartbeat. Oh my gosh. So That is so cool. Wow, it suddenly feels way more real. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Everything looks perfect. (laughs) 
Ayan. Oh my god. <laughs> Isn't that so cool? You can see its little legs. Is that what that is? That's yeah, that's legs. little legs. Wow. <laughs> I don't really have words for the relief I felt coming out of that appointment. We didn't need words. We had a picture. In the car on the way home, I just kept staring at that ultrasound photo of our baby. But seeing that heartbeat wasn't just a moment of joy. Now that it felt real, a new kind of anxiety asserted itself. Um, I know I've been anxiously... You've been a bit much today. <laughs> I just want to get work done, and I feel like we just have to hustle and hustle and hustle. And especially now that there's that little beating heart inside of you, I feel like a little snowball is rolling down the mountain now, picking up more snow as it goes. And, and it's just going to get... you didn't feel that before you saw the heartbeat? Not really. The heartbeat did it to you. The heartbeat did it to me in a way, yeah. I'm, I'm just feeling sort of economic anxiety that is being compounded and heightened by the sense that a very expensive um, project is going to emerge from your body. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. I feel you. Um, so one thing that I will say, your insane fidgety anxiety is a symptom of is something that I saw in you as a mate instinctually, which is that you're like, the woman is pregnant, must provide. <laughs> so good on you. Um, I don't want to have to write emails while I'm in the car, though. <laughs> so let's just chill until we get home and then we'll write emails, okay? Because we're going to figure it out. I really do think that you can breathe and just be present with me right now. And maybe we can just sit in the glow for a moment of the fact that we have a fucking heartbeat. It's I gone. did not it's know. It's gone for me. <laughs> the glow is gone. It lasted a few minutes, and then I was like, get to work. <laughs> glow with me. <laughs> I, you know. It has a heartbeat. That's really good. Do you have, like, an instinct what it is? I think it's a boy. Why do you have that feeling? Um... Maybe because a part of me, like, wants it to be a girl, but a part of me is like, bitch, no. Nope. <laughs> like, universe isn't going to be nice to me. <laughs> no, nope. You get to have a boy that you will worry about for the rest of your life. But worry and anxiety is only half the story. That heartbeat finally opened a door into the world of excitement and endless baby stuff. All right, this is the swaddle. So there are like a million swap. For the record, just so you know, I spent so much time looking at different kinds of like diaper bags and car seats. You just want me to appreciate how much work you've appreciate done? how much work I've done to this like is like me being like I didn't just buy any air compressor. Yeah, no, this is the swaddle. Look at this dope high chair though, and it like transitions, right? I guess. Why are you not excited? About this high chair? Yes. It just looks like some weird Ikea bullshit. 
So first of all, Ikea is not weird bullshit. They are very clever. <laughs> and this is a very clever high I, chair. I get it. It's designed to be modular so that as the child grows up, it can sit in a bigger chair. Yep. Can't they this just go from the- a high chair to a normal chair with a phone book? Can't just sit on a phone book like we used to? No. We were only a few weeks in, but already we were talking about high chairs the child won't need until it's at least six months old. Without even thinking, you start living in the future, worrying about that eventual teenager. The one thing that I keep thinking of is how boy hormones are terrifying to me. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. Why you think that a girl would be easier? Girls don't have aggression the way that boys do. No, but I can totally imagine a teen girl like wanting to wear really provocative clothing and me being like, yeah, don't leave the house like that, you know? I feel like I have a handle on that more, though, because I'm a woman. I've been there. Um, Can you imagine doing your 13-year-old son's laundry and finding, like, stiff cum rags everywhere? Oh, I'm making But just, like, what are you going to do at the phase when they become a chronic masturbator is what I'm asking. I'm going to think the boy's healthy. And he's in his room and you're like... Are you in there? It's, it's dinner time. I'm busy. You know? So here's the thing. I know that you're a little weird and squeamish about other people's bodies. I'm not at all squeamish about other people's bodies. In prison, I was taking tweezers and pulling out other women's armpit hairs. Like, I'm totally ready and equipped to deal with the fact that our children are going to have gross human bodies that excrete things and you're welcome when you're old and need your butt wiped (laughs) thank you i'll get a robot to wipe (laughs) yeah honestly like even the idea of changing diapers is not really something i'm looking forward to i don't want to get puked on i don't want to get peed on i don't want to get poop on my fingers (laughs) on accident i don't want to have to smell poop oh man boo you're gonna (laughs) learn a new way of existence (laughs) but back here in the present day there are more pressing concerns like if i'm eight weeks pregnant can i drink coffee can i have a glass of wine what about sushi Emily Oster dug into the data on all these questions and found that the standard medical advice was not always well-founded. From what I understand, you got a fair amount of pushback from institutional establishment voices saying, like, you're not an expert in this. Can you describe the sort of pushback you've received from various sources and how you've countered it or what you think about it? I got much more pushback I'm expecting better than on crib sheets. And of course, I understand that pushback that I'm not a doctor. And when you deliver your baby, you better hope that I'm not the person (laughs) pulling it out because I don't really know how that works. (laughs) But a lot of the work in understanding these things is really just understanding data, causality and understanding like what does research tell us? That is the thing that I'm an expert in. My research is about statistical methods. My research is about health economics. And I think that sometimes there's this feeling like when you graduate from medical school, they tap you on the head with a special magic wand that gives you all this special private information. No, actually the conclusions that you're coming to are just based on data. Mm-hmm. And the better you understand the data, the better you understand those conclusions. There's no secret code. Do you think that there are certain parts of expecting better that were perhaps taboo? 
that drew the most ire? I mean, the biggest ire was around the drinking in pregnancy, for sure. Hmm. The idea that the occasional drink during pregnancy does not show evidence of, of bad impact, that definitely drew a lot of ire. In Expecting Better, Oster did a comprehensive analysis of the studies and data underlying medical recommendations about drinking during pregnancy, and she concluded that there is no good evidence that light drinking during pregnancy negatively impacts your baby. Light drinking being defined as one to two drinks a week in the first trimester, and up to one per day in the second and third. This is in line with common social practices in Europe, where light drinking during pregnancy is much more common and less taboo than in the U.S., and where, notably, the rate of fetal alcohol syndrome is no higher. And yet, the common refrain here is, no amount of alcohol has been proven safe during pregnancy. Proven safe is usually taken to mean that light drinking during pregnancy hasn't been run through a large-scale randomized trial for obvious ethical reasons. But that same standard would also put into question things like Tylenol and prenatal vitamins, which also haven't been proven safe by large-scale randomized trials. I mean, that gets into this general issue that I deal with a lot, which is how do we think about risks? And the idea that in much of pregnancy, there is this general idea, well, if anyone has ever suggested that something might be bad, you just shouldn't do it. If you do, you're a terrible parent, Yeah. right? That comes up time and time again. The idea that any risk even been suggested to the fetus should cause us to alter our behavior, even if that alteration is really costly. And I think we may want to weigh this against other factors. Yet another example of as soon as you're a pregnant woman, you cease to be a woman and you become a fetus incubator. And if you are not a fetus incubator 100% of the time, then you're a yeah. bad person. And it's like, wow, it makes me feel dehumanized. And then, you know, you're going to get this on the other side too, hmm. right? So as soon as the baby is out, now you're a lactation machine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, in our, in our first pregnancy, this was around Mother's Day, we revealed to the parents. And then Amanda had a glass of wine that night. And we got some very patronizing, you should be careful. It's not just you that you're making decisions for as if we as hadn't if thought very thinking. carefully about this, you know? <laughs> and so then we, we had to be like, why don't you read Emily Oster's book? <laughs> yeah. The idea that was posed to me that I took great offense at was, remember, there's something inside of you. And I was like, you know what? Everything hurts. And I am super aware of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm not in danger of forgetting. Thank you. Yeah. We actually decided that even though we've read your chapter on that, we ended up choosing abstinence During with alcohol. During first trimester. Yeah. But for us, it's more of a personal willpower thing <laughs> yeah. uh, than it is a worry about the baby. Yeah. For me, it's a good excuse. Yeah, sometimes people you know? will talk to me like this, like in a sort of apologetic way. Like, I don't, it's like, I don't care if you, like, you know, it's okay. That's totally fine. Uh, you know, I think it's really about information, not about suggesting that you should right <laughs> you should drink. Emily Oster told me to drink. Don't well, me to drink. Yeah, it's like no. I don't want to personally cave to bad information old wives tales. I don't want my behavior to be affected by that. I want to be operating in a world of real truths as much as I can. I think both of us are on that page. So The way many people have expressed this to me, which I really think makes a lot of sense is 
it's not going to have the same relaxing vibe that I enjoy a glass of wine with because I'm going to be thinking about this. So I just decided it was not for me. And I think that like makes a lot of sense. Abstinence from alcohol was easy for us. But sushi was another matter. It's our favorite food. And the advice we were hearing was no raw fish. But it turns out it's not that simple. Salmonella and Campylobacter are the main concerns with sushi. But illnesses from these bacteria are not more common during pregnancy, nor do they directly affect the fetus. And the omega-3 fatty acids in fish have actually been shown to correlate with higher IQ. So fish is good during pregnancy, right? Well, there are also concerns about mercury content. But not all fish are high in mercury, the way tuna and halibut are. Salmon is fine. As with a lot of these blanket prohibitions, it turns out the answer is that it's a lot more complicated. The sushi thing, though, is like, actually, we actually care a lot more about that. (laughs) I have lorded over her a few times some delectable bites of tuna. Yeah, you jerk. (laughs) (laughs) But looking at the, like, pamphlets that our OBGYN gave us, they say things like, do not eat more than 12 ounces per week of seafood that's low in mercury, such as shrimp and salmon. And it's like, why? No explanation is given. There's no reason. And they keep changing that, right? Then they're like, oh, actually, more fish is good for you. You know, this is like much dietary advice, which is based on nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that is some of the lowest quality advice. There's literally no reason to not eat shrimp. Well, no it drives me a little bit crazy because it's hard for me to step into her world and imagine what it's like to be told you can't have this and to just abide by it. And just be like, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, there's all this fear mongering that is thrown at pregnant women. One of the realizations from a lot of this writing is that actually there are multiple okay ways to do things. If you want to like eat more salmon, that's fine. But if you don't, that's also fine. I mean, when it flips though, and someone chastises you yeah. for eating salmon, you got to push back. No, that's the worst, right? It's like one thing for me to be like, salmon's not for me. It's another thing for you to be like, it shouldn't be for you also. What do you think in general about this fear-mongering that surrounds pregnancy? I mean, I think that this is a relatively new, and I think it comes a little bit from the general push to, like, as we are having kids older, when we have accomplished more other things, I went to the college I wanted, I got the job that I wanted, now I'm going to achieve being the best pregnant person. And then if you want to achieve the best baby, you have to do all the things. You don't want to achieve the baby that like had too much salmon. Hmm. Economists have this idea of this quantity quality trade-off that like there's a move from having a lot of kids to having a smaller number, but trying to like make them better right? and invest more in them. I think the other piece of it is actually that since some of these things are really unpleasant, it's very jarring to think they don't matter after you have done them. Hmm. So if like I went my whole pregnancy and didn't have any coffee, And then if you're like, oh, it's actually totally fine to have coffee. I don't really want to think, oh, I could have been having coffee all that time. (laughs) No, no, I gave it up because I love my baby. Sunk cost fallacy. When that fetus is growing inside you, you'll alter your life in radical ways. You'll make tremendous sacrifices. But the conflicting advice and lack of good data behind much of this advice makes the whole thing stressful. And that only feels worse when you consider that, for the most part, TV and magazines and social media have prepared you to glow, 
and offered little guidance about what to do when you feel less like a star and more like a black hole. The thing that I'm feeling right now is that I'm hoping that I am experiencing prepartum depression as opposed to postpartum depression. I've always imagined that I would come very naturally to feeling pregnant, and it doesn't. And that's really disconcerting to me. And it does make me go into my worry spirals where I'm like, oh my God, am I not gonna be good at being a mom, but then I'm hoping that it's just a hormonal thing. My mom keeps checking in and being like, yo, how's it going? And I feel this sort of weird pressure to be like, it's going great. And I don't feel super comfortable talking about yeah. it not going great. It's weird because it doesn't even super fully feel real yet because it's yeah. not like I feel like I have another person inside me. I just feel shitty. Right. Anyway, the moral of the story is that right now it doesn't feel like I expected it to feel and that makes feel me like sad. The Beyonce photo? No. The glamour pregnancy shot, the one where everyone looks so happy to be pregnant, that's not how I feel today. Surely this kind of depression wasn't rare. We decided to ask Emily Oster about it. I actually started thinking about this more when I was thinking about what happens postpartum. We don't talk that much about postpartum depression, even though it's super common. Mm. But it's also true that prepartum depression is really common. And half of the postpartum depression really starts before. There's a lot of hormones. There's a lot of anticipated changes. And I think so much of that is hidden because people don't put this stuff out to the world. The people on Instagram are like, they don't feel like that. No. They're not depressed. And I think that we could be a little more honest. So I think what you're experiencing is totally normal and is actually very common. There are seemingly endless sources of anxiety during pregnancy. We'd seen a heartbeat, but that didn't mean our embryo was genetically healthy. Our first prenatal screening was scheduled at 12 weeks, very early in the morning. Oh my God, it's... 5.20 a.m. <laughs> the day of reckoning. Not really awake. I was texting Deanna yesterday, and she was like, how far along are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm a day until 12 weeks. And she was like, ah, you're almost in the safe zone. And I was like, well, I won't be in the safe zone until I have the full steam ahead from genetic testing. I don't feel like I'm in the safe zone yet. Yeah, I, I don't think time can just put you in the safe zone. Well, Knowledge it, puts you in the safe zone. Right, but like generally people say you're less at risk of miscarriage in second yeah. trimester. Well, that'll be a relief. What are your main anxieties right now? I would be devastated to find out that there was some genetic thing wrong with it and I would have to abort. 
And at this stage of my pregnancy, that would be a procedure. That would be like surgery. That would be devastating. It would be like surgery? They'd have to go in there and suck it out. Oh, God. And anyone who says that women do abortions willy-nilly is full of shit. That idea is horrifying to me, and I would only do it if I genuinely felt like it was not worth it to the baby and certainly not worth it to us to continue the pregnancy. What about your general thoughts of... Have you been lied to? Absolutely, I've been lied to. Images of pregnant women... What stuck in my mind was you're this glowing woman at her pinnacle of womanness. And of course, when you're at your pinnacle of womanness, you just feel like a goddess. You're just this femininity embodied and you feel like you're your full self. And I have not felt that way at all. I have felt like a stranger in my own body And it has been very, very disconcerting. And I think in large part because my expectations were so otherwise. If my expectations were, you're gonna feel like a vessel for nine months, then I'd be like, yep, that checks out. I'm feeling like just a vessel here. (laughs) (laughs) And that's lame, you know? Do you feel a sense of loss or mourning for the body? Yeah, because I don't really feel like I've replaced it with something as meaningful to me yet. At this point in the process, I still have yet to feel like a mom. So I just feel like a weird, awkward, fat version of myself, which is not a good feeling. Well, for the record, I feel that way too. (laughs) About me. What's your excuse? (laughs) COVID-19. Yeah. It's the COVID-19. COVID-19. We arrived at the ultrasound, and this time, finally, they let Chris into the room with me. They scanned for lots of basic things. Does the fetus have two arms and two legs? Is its face taking shape? Can you see the beginnings of the brain? But the crucial screening to allay genetic fears is the measurement of the nuchal translucency, a little fluid sac on the back of the neck. If it measures more than three millimeters, that correlates with various abnormalities, like Down syndrome. The nurse took the measurements and gave us the thumbs up. Everything looked fine. There was still a lot of scary uncertainty ahead of us, but we had a baby. It had a heartbeat. It was, as far as we could tell, healthy. We'd made it through 12 weeks, a whole trimester, and Chris and I were experiencing the first flutterings of realization that us wasn't just us anymore. Man, that was the first time that I got like... The real vibe? I'm just like, oh my god, (laughs) it's real. It's just seeing its brain, seeing its arms. Its arms, its fucking face. face. Yeah. Wow. Whew. How are you doing? <laughs> the shapes of the face hits you in a deep emotional way. Just that it's so ingrained that when you see that set of shapes, you're like, oh, person. Yep. And the little fluttery, it's, <laughs> it's 
It's a little more real. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm glad it feels real for you. That's ours. <laughs> like, that's you and me. Weird. <laughs> and we have to fucking take care of it. <laughs> it's gonna be mean to us. <laughs> it's gonna be mean to us. At some point. <laughs> Totally gonna be mean to us. At some point, it'll be like, I hate you. <laughs> Did you ever say, I hate you? I never said, I hate I you. I wrote it in permanent marker on my parents' bedroom wall. Look at you, bad kid. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I could just watch it for hours. Weird. Weird. It's in you. I know. It's in <laughs> you. You right want to touch there. me now, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time you did that. <laughs> Touched your belly? Touched my belly. There's nothing to feel, really. I know, there's nothing to feel yet, but... But I want to feel <laughs> I feel very ready. Yeah? In this moment in my life, yeah. Yeah. Feels right. You just did a whole body shiver. <laughs> <laughs> It's those kinds of shivers that make all the anxiety and bouts of tears worth it. Because as it turns out, pregnancy isn't always fun. At least, not in the beginning. Could the second trimester be better? Or are there just a whole new set of challenges? Stay tuned for part two of our mini-series. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Instagram, at Knox at MC Carbon, E-M-C-E-E Carbon. And please give us a five-star review. Tell your friends and visit knoxrobinson.com where you can find all our creative madness. This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Tell me about doting. One dote is one nice thing that you do to me or for me. So you expect how many dotes well, as a pregnant woman? So I'm working backwards here and thinking that in the final week of pregnancy, for a day that has 16 waking hours, I'm giving you one dote per hour, which adds up to 112 dotes for that week. Okay. So now I have to figure out at what rate to drop that back until we reach our current point. Is it just a couple a week here? What do yeah. we want the shape of this curve to look like? Maybe it's like, so how about for the coming week, it should be once a day. Start at once a day and yeah. build a scale from there? And build a scale from there. Now, wait a minute. Is it a dote if you ask? It's still a dote if I ask, but you should be in the habit of thinking, if Amanda hasn't asked for her dote today... Then I, I can come up and be like, hey, I brought you a little piece of hollow bread. Then I can be like, yes, crossed off a dote. <laughs> I mean, I should be able to ask, but also no. you should just rub my feet. So <laughs> however you want to translate that. <laughs> but it has to be a good faith dote. You can't be giving me bullshit dotes. Okay, I'm going to do the math and see where we land here.